one of the best moments of my life attending Queen's funeral and the seat I managed to get was probably the hottest seat anyone can get. Suleiman Raza, a restauranter, a hotelier, a celebrity and an MBE. Coming an MBE brings a great responsibility. Before having an MBE could be a different Suleiman and now it could be a different Suleiman. What is your greatest fear? If you have worked hard, a lot of the time you have this fear back of your mind. What if you go back down the ladder? You seem to be very connected. I mean, is that something that you actively do? Always looking at my parents struggling to bring food on the table, which kept the fuel burning inside, how I could possibly contribute and support my family. What is your greatest fear? Straight away. Um, I think this is a very common question gets asked. If you have worked hard uh, to uh, achieve your goals and pretty much started from scratch, a lot of the time you have this fear back of your mind. What if you go back down the ladder? What will happen again? And this is a feeling you really don't have an answer for. And yes, um, you know, you want to be prepared for all the challenges and hardships again. As in a business, you know, we are all, um, you know, living on a roller coaster kind of uh, life. But then um, falling from the top to the bottom is a feeling which nobody wants to go through. Funny you say that because I was thinking this morning, um, literally this morning, what if I went back to where I started? Because the thought came when I was thinking, you know, I was happy once when I was earning, say, £1,200 a month. Now, alhamdulillah, you know, visually people can see, you know, and, and I can see myself, you know, I've made a lot of progress financially. But it seems like that time was somehow happier than, mm. than the time. I mean, of, of course, you have all the kind of freedom and, and you can do things. But it seems like when you had the less money, you had that peace of mind. But then again, you don't want to go back to that position. So, you know, I can, I can definitely relate to that. Mm. Now, take us um, back, way, way back in time. Um, what was life like growing up back in Pakistan? Yeah, um, pretty much a very humble beginning. Um, obviously, I had a very poor background. Um, my father was, used to work in a post office, a government employee. Um, so I had, uh, I'm the younger sibling in my family. So Alhamdulillah, uh, I have two elder brothers and two sisters and I'm the youngest one. Um, always looking at my parents, um, you know, struggling to bring food on the table, uh, which kept the fuel burning inside how I could possibly contribute and support my family. Um, so during uh, my childhood, I remember I was compromising and sacrificing a lot on my support sports and other activities. Mm -hmm in order to see how I could support. So um, I started working 
when I was only 13 years old um, in my uncle's medical store um, as a just helper, helping them with the, with the prescriptions and medicines, sorting out mm-hmm. uh, deliveries and all that. So <clears throat> and I used to get uh, 10 rupees every day and I used to bring it and give it to my mom. So even though it was very little, but I was trying to contribute. So I guess, um, you know, now that we've grown and, you know, we've come that far, I always look back and I give credit to my mom that she kind of ignited that uh, desire within me at a very young age that we really need to progress. We really need to improve ourselves and improve our living standards. And, uh, you know, probably... Uh, she was the one who agreed to send me abroad. I was very young. I was only 18. And, um, you know, she was continuously just telling me you will do well and, you know, just go and do your best. So um, during the childhood, I don't really have a lot of fancy memories. I All I remember is I used to go school and then come back and go to the work. And then I uh, went to college for couple of years and even during college years I was coming back home then going back to the work and uh, trying to support my family as much as I can. So you started working at 13 at the age of 13. Um, what was your siblings doing? Uh, my siblings were all working obviously my elder brothers were also working uh, they were government employees they were also quite young uh, they were all trying to contribute uh, within their own capacities, but not enough, you know, because uh, the earnings in Pakistan were not never enough. Alhamdulillah, we never had to go out and beg someone. Uh, it was still enough to have the food on the table. Uh, but then, when you you know, when you when you look around, people uh, doing so well around you, as well as um, you know, one other thing, I was always inspired with, uh, you know, during my childhood, is looking at people trying to contribute. To others, especially my mom, within the limited resources, she was always trying to do charity, and uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, she used to distribute some food, cook at home, and distribute in the kids in the the local community. So I always used to think, how could I have lots of money to contribute on a bigger scale? Because this is very little, you know, what we are doing every day. So uh, you know, that was kind of the feelings we were going through. You were exposed to cooking back in Pakistan. Did you watch your mom and did you think, you know, maybe I might do that one day as well? Or as a man, obviously growing up in, in the, a family in Indian subcontinent, a man is generally not the one who's cooking mm-hmm. unless you're a professional chef or something. Yeah, you're right. Uh, in <clears throat> back home, India, Pakistan, you never, as a man, you never think about cooking and and similarly, I never thought I would be cooking, even though I had a little bit of interest in cooking and seeing my mom cook. And as you would agree, everyone thinks their mom is the best chef in the world. I thought exactly. the same. <laughs> and so I was um, watching her cooking, especially for my father's guests coming in. And in the middle of the night, I would call her and tell her, you know, I have some guests coming in, you know, cook for five of them, ten of them, and she will quickly get ready and start cooking. And that's the time she usually used to ask me to help her a little bit. Um, so there was a little bit of an inspiration uh, during that time, but I never thought for one second that at any time in future I would be cooking or I'll be in the same business of spices and, you know, putting the food for other people's on the table. Wow. So at what age um, did you actually move 
to the UK? Yeah, so I was only 18 uh, when I came to the UK. Um, uh, obviously, uh, it was a pretty young time for me to to move to the UK. Uh, so I started um, working in a restaurant as a dishwasher. Uh, that was my first job. Um, I don't know how much I need to tell it this question. You can guide me, whatever. So before before you, uh, I guess, move forward, what... Was there a particular a particular event in your life or your family life or as a family where that triggered you guys to think, do you know what, maybe someone needs to go abroad and, you know, perhaps, you know, bring some income home? Or, or, or what was that decision? Why did that decision come about? I think, uh, you know, back in the days, I'm looking at good 20, 22 years uh, back, you know, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh were all the same. And there was not many opportunities. I would call it equal lack of equal opportunities, uh, which leads every young individual to think about how possibly they can grow. So I was just one of them. And obviously my family, uh, looking at all the possible resources available to us at the time within our country, within our reach, we thought possibly going abroad will can help us grow faster and uh, have all the the desires achieved much sooner. If we continue living there, God knows how long it will take. So it was pretty much an obvious decision. <coughs> um, you know, some of the other family uh, friends had their siblings abroad and we can see them doing well. So we were just thinking during our discussions at family dinners that, you know, one of us should go out and try and make a living and then slowly we can see how it goes. But so, we, knew, we knew that, uh, you know, going abroad will definitely bring, you know, better results. So what was the process like? So you've decided, you've established that you want to move to the UK, families backing you, supporting you. Generally, I think, I don't know what's your kind of story, but generally the younger sibling always uh, gets the extra love. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> okay, mashallah. So you decided that you want to come to the UK. What was the process like back then? Was it hard? Was it difficult? Or was it quite a, quite a easy process? Yeah, it was a very difficult process. I mean, I uh, came as a student. Uh, so I managed to get an admission in the uh, college in the UK, in London. And the process wasn't easy. Uh, back in the days, they used to interview you at the British High Commission. And you have to prepare yourself yeah. uh, through... Um, lots of uh, counseling and training you have to get it and then uh, you have to show a lot of uh, income uh, and a bank statement so I didn't have that at the time so we reached out to my uh, one of my family friend who kindly supported us by providing his bank statements and uh, giving us the undertaking that he will happily support all the funding for the for the students uh, you know during my work um, uh, during my studies in in London, so so going through that process, um, obviously uh, there were there were some borrowings involved, uh, but we were quite fortunate that some family friends supported us, lended us some money, which Alhamdulillah within the six months of me reaching here, we returned back to everyone. Um, and uh, while I was when I got the visa and during my uh, receiving during me receiving the visa and traveling to UK, I was planning in my mind how much I am going to earn and how I am going to return this loan hmm. and how am I going to support my mom and family. So I started, 
you know, daydreaming in my mind. Uh, so that process of probably, I think, about 10 days between getting the visa and traveling to UK, I was just planning how I'm going to settle down, how I'm going to work around, how many hours. And I was asking friends who were there already how much you earn every day. So I was just trying to calculate things, how wow. I'm going to do so. Impressive. I mean, so, um, generally you learn this stuff in goal setting and, you know, uh, creating a clear objective. And you were kind of doing that, you know, already before you even arrived to the UK, which not many people do, by the way. They arrive and then they start looking at solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, they, will, they don't think it through. Now, you arrived in the UK with like 50 pounds in your pocket. So what other challenges have you faced when you actually arrived in, in the UK? Um, obviously, finding a job. Um, a very next day, um, I came out of the house and um, I decided to look for a was job. Was it summer or was it winter that time? Winter. A winter. very cold winter. A very cold winter. It was November 29th when wow. I came to this country. So uh, the very next day, I came out of the house and started uh, walking around the shops. I thought, let me just ask for a job. I don't want to waste time and look for a job because my college was starting in a month's time or in three weeks' time. So I had a little bit of time. So I thought, let me see if I could find a job. So I started uh, walking around from shop to shop asking for a job. Um, And uh, there were not many uh, opportunities available within the local area. So I started walking further and further even though I didn't know how to walk back I just went uh, kept on walking uh, literally two to three miles wow this is way before your maps and google maps yes so you just kind of kept on walking and walking walking, not knowing how the hell you're gonna get back yes and I didn't even have a mobile phone so so I just kept walking and uh, looking for a job there were a couple of opportunities offered so I thought I'll go back think about it come back so eventually I came back uh, looking at the shops and signs which I was looking at while I was going away. So it took me a good three, four hours before I came back home. And the next day I decided to go again because the job which I was offered was probably much lower paid. So I thought maybe let me see, look for a better opportunity. And so I started uh, walking towards Brixton and that is uh, almost about four miles from Streatham where I first um, came. So uh, when I walked into this restaurant, uh, I asked for a job and they said, we only have a dishwasher job. We'll pay you this much. So I said, yes, very good. When can I start? They said, next day. So I think within uh, three to four days of reaching this country, I found my first job. I was very, very excited that, uh, you know, I, I finally I'm going to work. And um, even, even I mentioned my experience in my TEDx talk, which I did recently, that uh, on the very first day, I decided to wear white pair of trainers which has gifted to be my brother before I came to this country and I didn't realize what exactly I need to do as a dishwasher so when I walked into the restaurant the chef gave me a lot of pots and pans (laughs) uh, which I had to wash so I was literally crying in my inside you know what is going to happen to my trainers because I wasn't worried about me getting tired or anything I thought how could I save my my trainers this is how you know a young mind works Mm -hmm. So um, at the end of the first shift, my my white trainers were turned into black and gray. And that was a big disappointment for me. <laughs> Going back home, even though I first day at work, you know, uh, you know, I had 
I never expected this much hard work and my back had a little bit of pain, but I was more worried about my shoes. Wow, you know, this, uh, is, this is, this is uh, <laughs> definitely funny. Um, so you walked a long distance. I mean, why did you walk that long? What, I mean, is it because you're someone that doesn't settle for less and you wanted to kind of really kind of go out there and see what's really out there? Yeah, I guess um, part of a bit of both, I think. Um, I wanted to get a better opportunity. But then on the other side, the shops which I was going to were mostly convenience stores. Uh, I didn't want to work in off-license stores. Um, Why? You know, it's just, uh, you know, when I was leaving Pakistan, my mom said, you know, you, you shouldn't be doing anything wrong, which would be... Uh, embarrassed off, so try uh, stay away from all these. So it's mainly because of alcohol aspect yes, and stuff like yes, that. Okay. Yes. So I didn't want to go to that, and uh, most of the shops which was within the area, and I was, while I was walking, were off licenses. Some of the chicken shops already had enough staff. A couple of them said, "Come next week." Some of them said, "Come in two weeks." It's cold. It's winter. Okay. Come back in summer. So all sorts of responses. Talk me through the journey. How how did it go on from there? So washing dishes, what was the next step in terms of your career progression? Yes, yeah, so uh, while I was working in the restaurant as a dishwasher, uh, one of uh, my job was to help the chef uh, during his cooking processes. So every day I used to get, in, get at work pretty much first into the restaurant and set up the stations for my chef to come in. And uh, that's where I started seeing him cooking and kind of fell in love with, uh, you know, whatever he's cooking every day. He's got that special art. There are a lot of mechanism going around his cooking structures and how he prepared dishes. The fragrances were always exciting me while I'm cooking, tasting, because a lot of the time he was asking me to taste just to get a second opinion. And that's where I developed my taste buds. So... So I kind of uh, started uh, helping him uh, and requesting him to teach me a little bit more about the cooking. So I'm very fortunate and blessed that he was such a kind soul who was uh, always supportive of me. And uh, Generally, chefs are very protective, right, of their recipes and what they do. They don't want you to kind of come that of way. They want, they want you to stay away. Of course. So uh, he wasn't one of them. So he was a very kind a person and... Um, when I told him about my story and how I came and I have borrowed a lot of money and all that. So he was all very, always very compassionate towards me and uh, showing me a lot of love because I was pretty young, didn't have any moustache, didn't have any beard, very uh, slim guy. So, um, You're so still he, slim guy, mashallah. So yeah. <laughs> you've kept that going. <laughs> yeah, alhamdulillah. So, um, so he kind of uh, inspired me to get into the cooking and he was always telling me, you know, like he comes across a lot of youngsters who are not interested in cooking and learning the art of cooking. And they, you know, never progress in the in their careers. Whereas I still remember his quotes were saying, you know, if you learn this, you will always uh, uh, be thankful to me. And he used to say this literally every day, three to four times until this day now, obviously. Since you remember I've, this? I remember this because... I wasn't probably taking seriously at that time when I was telling me, you will always be thankful to me for teaching you what I'm teaching you. So learn this, how to cook rice, how to cook biryani and all these things. Help me with the spices. So so that's where I started learning. Um, and uh, pretty much within a year's time, I was uh, maybe an assistant chef 
who is helping very much with the curries and biryanis wow. and pretty much doing uh, most of his work and so he started saying you know i'm doing really well for him so amazing so do you still keep in touch with that chef is he still around he he died sadly few oh, years ago yeah obviously uh, i worked in the restaurant for almost 3 years and during that time as soon as i learned the cooking um uh, i thought and i started thinking about setting up my own restaurant um luckily my my other brother elder brother was also here so we kind of got together Amazing. i said to him you know let's set up a restaurant so we started looking around for a shop so we went on to get a shop in tooting high street uh it was only a 15 seater restaurant we didn't have enough money to even get it and set it up as a restaurant so again went on to get some help from friends and families uh which they did and so back in 2004 we opened up our first restaurant under the name of spice village in tooting uh only a takeaway shop with uh, no uh, no staff around to help us pretty much me and my brother on his own and that's how we started wow and was that chef that you learned from was he disappointed knowing <laughs> that you're going to leave him yeah i mean um, so so back in 2004 when i uh, was working as a full time chef within that restaurant he has already left okay that restaurant so that made it a bit to, easy for you then it was easier for me even though my boss wasn't happy for me leaving the job to setting up my own but i kind of convinced him look you know i have to go for bigger opportunities and he said if you were going for a job i would have never left you but because you're going for your own business good luck no 100% i think every entrepreneur has to understand this like okay if you're going for a better pay then let's have a discussion, let's have a discussion. and if it's something away from that then of course wish you all the best true um so were there many uh, pakistani restaurants around tooting at that time uh, not really i think uh, one of the one of the main thing um i realized very early in my career that law of uh, restaurants are operating under different or south asian identity mm. especially indian uh so i i always thought when i set up my restaurant i'll be always calling it a proud pakistani establishment so from the day dot we set it up marketed it under the pakistani identity and i think that was something really worked for us because at that time in tooting there were few restaurants but all were operating under indian identity and uh, there were a lot of muslim community especially in pakistan bangladesh um who were living in the area but always moaning about the quality of the food because i was a chef so i knew pretty much what's uh, taste region from pakistan so i kind of set up the tone from the day one where i was able to attract the pakistani clientele from all around london initially from the local area but from all around london where all the pakistani clientele can come in and proudly eat within their own establishment who's not uh, shy of uh, you know expressing their own identity so i think the idea of uh, showcasing our own identity really really worked for us because uh, like i said Uh, there were so many restaurants at the time not just in tooting in around london who were operating under different identities did uh, that annoy you like you know why are they doing that and you know what when i do it inshallah it's going to be pakistani identity yeah i mean I, i i you know at that time as i was very young i didn't know why they're doing it and i was frustrated why they're doing it but obviously later on as i grew i realized why they were doing it there were obvious reasons mm-hmm. for selling it under different identity and i've um, to be honest if you 
check my um, Google uh, track record. I've worked pretty much um, all these years to to get the recognition for Pakistani cuisine uh, across the board, not just in London, maybe across UK. And I've always uh, I've always been a flag bearer of our own identity rather than selling it under Indian or anything because the the taste buds are too different. And there's so many differences. So t- talk to me about the taste buds, the differences between Pakistani cuisine, Indian and Bangladeshi cuisine. Because obviously generally like the way I see, I see when I look at you, I look at you as an artist. A, almost like a, in, in, in perfume world, you know, that's what a perfumer would do, like, you know, different mixes, different. And in, in, in fact, a lot of the in, ingredients, they kind of overlap. So what are the differences? You know, if you were to just kind of explain to us in a very simple term. So um, the Indian cuisines are usually very overpowering and uh, they use more of um, uh, these uh, uh, stuff which uh, pretty much more of the creamy stuff. Uh, they have evolved over the years when they obviously first Indian restaurants started opening up in the UK. They kind of evolved into mixing the British style into the Indian style, whereas Pakistani style is still pretty new. And Bangladeshis have also pretty much evolved into British style of cooking, mixing it into the Indian stuff. So um, when it comes to Pakistani stuff, our ingredients are pre- still pretty uh, authentic. And we, use, we don't really use a lot of uh, fragrances within the food in terms of using um, alaichi, you know, uh, and uh, these uh, flannel sauce powder and that kind of stuff, which helps you generate those fragrances. So, so if you eat at a Pakistani restaurant, you will feel the food is very authentic. If you eat at the Indian restaurant, you'll feel it's it's kind of a um, combination of some artificial uh, ingredients which are enhancing all the, the taste. So with all regards to Indian food or Bangladeshi food, I'm not saying they are bad, but, you know, they are different to us mainly for these reasons it's within the UK. I mean, there are, I mean, because I'm a foodie and I'm a, in a food business, so I travel around the world always tasting food, especially in the UK, the British Pakistani food has still pretty much connected to its roots from its authenticity, whereas the Bangladeshi and Indian food has pretty much lost it and have evolved around the demand from English audience as well as, uh, you know, the born and bred up uh, youngsters who don't like too much spices, as well as are pretty much not even aware of what the real food tastes like. You know, now that you say, um, now that you put it this way, kind of I can visualize it in my head, you know, because I've recently been into a um, Pakistani restaurant and, and it was really nice, mashallah, it was really nice. And I do intend to go back, and it is in Tooting. I just can't remember the name. But um, what you said about Bangladeshi cuisine that is that that's been Britishified, I so agree with it because now, only now, we're starting to see some real, authentic Bangladeshi restaurants um, come out in the scene. But generally, it's all kind of blended in. Mm. Um, if you were to go to Bangladesh, then you will see a whole different type of Bangladeshi yeah. cuisine. And it's, it's a very interesting um, setup over there. So what was that one dish that really put your restaurant on the map? And what was the process of getting to that dish? Um, so we kind of created um, a recipe. It was an enhanced recipe of a fried fish 
cold masala fish. It's called village special masala fish, which we started uh, in the very early days of setting up our restaurants. So, um, so I kind of got a recipe from somewhere, but then I kind of enhanced by adding pretty much I see you mixing up these fragrances to create a perfume. So it was pretty much of a similar case of enhancing a recipe by adding a few more uh, ingredients into it. So, um, so when we set up this uh, recipe together and started selling masala fish, that was it. It just blew off for us. And we were known uh, for good 10 years, um, we were known for our masala fish. And people were traveling all the way from Scotland to eat that masala fish. Word I of mouth or, or, or? Word of mouth. That's it. Word of mouth. So people were traveling, people were queuing up. So initially we only have 15-seater restaurant, as you can imagine. There were always queues, people trying to get in. Uh, there were other few dishes as well, which were pretty good. But this one dish, masala fish, was uh, an amazing dish for us. And and uh, the recipe was pretty special. Till this day, I uh, create that recipe. No one of my chef knows the recipe of this fish. Uh, we're thinking to launch the masala into the market very soon. We're currently of testing it, how to bottle it and, uh, you know, uh, start selling it into the high Obviously, the, the recipe must be very special and close to your heart. And you probably wouldn't even, you know, go near to kind of like, you know, saying what it might include. Oh, yes. Can you guys, can you give us a slight gist of what it might taste like? Yeah, so it's uh, more of, um, uh, you know, um, it's made with, it's, it's a deep fried fish. And we use caught fish, so there is no bone. Obviously, okay. no, no one likes bone in the fish. Uh, it's quite crispy, um, quite tasteful. And then, um, you know, like back home, I don't know if in Bangladesh you may have tried some fried fishes. Mm. Uh, I don't think I don't know anyone who sells as good of a fish in a desi style which we do. That's all I can say. Amazing. Hey guys, I hope you have been enjoying today's episode of Side by Side with myself, Kazi Shafiqur Rahman and our special guest, Suleiman Raza, MBE. If you have been enjoying our podcast today, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share it with your family and friends. Now, without any further ado, let's get back straight into the show. You must have been obviously enjoying the success of, or, or I guess, uh, of a very busy restaurant. Was there a point where you're thinking, you know, how long is this going to last? You know, I better just kind of hurry up and just make as much as I can. Was there a fear at that point? You know what, this could all go wrong. Yeah, I see I see a lot of these uh, food entrepreneurs, especially the restaurateurs, getting into the business, initially putting a lot of the effort and then losing the track and pretty much giving up or the second generation not prepared to take on. So I kind of, um, looking back, uh, we always had those those sort of thoughts that, you know, what will happen going forward and eventually we're going to get tired because this is a very uh, uh, time-consuming as well as challenging business because you have, have to have, you have to be on your toes all the time. So uh, one of the things I think which separates us uh, from our competitors or other restaurateurs that we always loved what we were doing and till this day we are pretty much in love with what we're doing. And that just keeps us going. We never look back. We don't want to wrap it up. We just want to expand and expand and expand. Mm -hmm. And the thing which keeps us going is the passion behind it because we're not looking at it 
from a perspective of giving you a service where you just give me money and I'll give you the it's not a money by service it's just kind of making you uh, feeding you and you just love it and getting that feeling back from you something just keeps us going amazing so so you went to open a second restaurant in in Tooting and obviously then it, you can't be in two places at the same time how did you kind of manage that process and make sure that masala fish tasted the same yeah so it was uh, a little bit challenging but obviously with the previous experience it helped us uh, setting up the second restaurant the third restaurant um obviously we uh, because i was the one who was behind the recipes so touchwood we never had any problems with the chefs and you know we thought how we can streamline our business and our cooking recipes and the transportation the logistics so within few years we managed to set up all those things and that's when we thought let's open up few more restaurants so that the quality wherever the customers go are still the same uh the 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 real challenge was always you know if you are going to one of the branches you 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 may like that one better than the other one but alhamdulillah you know we have been very consistent mainly because uh, you know we try the food ourselves before serving others absolutely same in in perfumery we wouldn't want to sell something that we wouldn't wear ourselves so it's, it's there's a lot of similarities because i went to a course recently in france and Yeah, when I was smelling the spices, I was like, I smell that in curry as well. Mm. So it was a very interesting um, course. So you called it Spice Village. Is it still Spice Village yes. from from day one? Yes. And how many have you got now? So we've got three restaurants now. Uh, back in 2010, we got into the events uh, and catering industry. And that was probably another game changer for us because... before that we were always thinking we're going to set up a big massive franchise across the country across london but as soon as we got into the events and catering business we realized this is probably much deeper than we thought and there's much more money to be made rather than going into the restaurant which is retail lot more stress and uh, you know working around the week uh, the, the the sales of a week is probably an average sale of one event so we had to choose between you know whether we continue expanding into the restaurant or we go into the catering so alhamdulillah uh you know in the catering and events industry we made a great progress uh where uh, you know we we are one of the leading uh, asian pakistani caterer again we are not uh, marketing ourselves as a indian or an asian caterer but a pakistani caterer with with a lot of uh, bangladeshi uh, fan base as well as uh, pakistani fan base <clears throat> Now that you've told me about the masala fish, is 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 it still on your menu? Because yes. I need I need to come and try it. Yes, and it, ha- it has to be made by you, man. One hundred percent. Um. So, and then you went to do much bigger things, and you know we will discuss about the hotel and and all of that. So you've made a calculated decision. Do you know what? Opening more restaurants, adding more costs, you know, more chefs, more people to manage, is just. too tiresome we would rather do events and you know just turn up at the event and you know just do the catering and you know it's one weeks is it did it's a one weeks uh, worth of revenue in yes, one day in, in one day yes well that's uh, that's impressive so if someone is actually trying to set up a restaurant maybe they have a thing for a restaurant maybe they think it's making money it's maybe the, some people say you know what restaurant or food business is one of the businesses that will always exist as long as there's humans around 
how would you what would you tell them what do they need to look out for and what do they need to do to set up a restaurant i think <coughs> restaurant is not top of a business which you just go in to get monetary uh, results or monetary benefits out of it so two things you need uh, first is the commitment of pretty much sacrificing your family and giving it as much time as you can pretty much forget about your family uh, so give it the commitment it needs uh, which means that you are prepared to spend hours and hours at work and second is your passion so if you're not prepared to serve the best and have that love behind it of feeding people uh, the restaurant is not going to be successful and i, I see love these um, successful restaurants out there the entrepreneurs behind them are the real uh, uh, people i mean a lot of the time you would come across people who would say oh they are doing well because they have a best chef but i tell you what they have the best entrepreneurs behind the scenes making sure they provide all the right ingredients to the chef empower him to deliver his best so um, you need to have the passion and the commitment to make this successful so you got to think twice before jumping into this so how do you feel when you taste a bad dish i mean a lot of these takeaways they're not I mean obviously you are a passionate person about food and you know you are all about quality I can see that from your from the way you're talking you can you I can feel the energy in the room how do you feel though when you when you taste a bad dish and you can see it's like they they haven't really put the effort in yeah i mean i over the years now that when i look at the dish i could pretty much tell uh, from the look of it is it's not great So uh, now that I've trained the chefs around us we've got a massive team of chefs who are always working and pretty much working on new recipes as well and I hardly get a chance to cook myself a lot of my time goes around tasting the dishes and which has given me a whole different um uh, avenue of uh, learning about the cooking and new recipes and dishes so when I taste a bad dish I'm still trying to see what could be the best combination taken out of it and added into a new recipe or into a good dish so if there's a bad dish uh, you know when you put it on your tongue it's like you have this fragrances business mm. you can tell what are the ingredients so if i put it on my tongue thankfully i can tell what are the ingredients and i can tell what was less and what is more and what needs to be added so even if it is a bad dish there's still something good in there So I'm always uh, telling the chefs to pick something from here and add it into the next one. Wow, amazing. So and then you ended up um opening a banqueting and boutique hotel. How did that come about? I mean, that's quite quite a transition from you know, food and restaurant industry to then into hotel. I guess that falls under travel tourism yeah. sector. Yeah, so credit to our events business which we were in uh, since 2010 and we were continuously looking for opportunities and how we can possibly expand our business further. So back in 2015 we opened up our first um hotel and uh, banqueting center which is still the biggest in South London up to 1000 capacity. Um the idea behind was very simple because we were in events industry we were going around different venues to cater for people we thought how about having our own venue and have people coming to us rather than we have to travel all around london picking up the food on the lorries and stuff 
So, and we knew pretty much uh, working in the events industry, this would do well. It was again a calculated risk um, uh, where in South London hardly anything existed at the time. So we were very fortunate to find this place and um, obviously we didn't have any hotel experience. Uh, so I thought again, it'll be pretty much starting from scratch while we've been already established in the restaurant and events industry. So Alhamdulillah, uh, within the three months of our opening up the rest, the hotel, uh, we managed to find good team around us. I um, worked as a receptionist in the hotel pretty much in the first few days just to learn about the hotel. Again, I learned from scratch before anybody else comes and joins the team so nobody can tell us what to do. So uh, the hotel side of thing and the banqueting side of things started doing pretty much well from the day dot. We even got bookings before we opened up. So uh, again, it was a game changer for us and um, you know, uh, we never looked back. Wow, so how many, how many rooms in the hotel? Uh, we have 40 rooms in the hotel. Oh, that's that's decent size. Yeah. Would you mind sharing with us, you know, what, what the cost, roughly what, what it could cost to set up something like this today? Subject to obviously the space being available. Um, I mean, there are few places in London which are already established and are gra- up for grab. Uh, you're looking at 20, 25 billion pounds worth to invest into this kind of venture. Well, that's pretty, pretty big. So business is booming. Hotel is launched. You know, you're kind of operating quite successfully. You're probably adding your entrepreneurial and and chef flair into the hotel business. Amazing stuff. And then obviously we are faced with uh, the global pandemic. How Mm. did that go for you? Uh, I know you've had a lot of initiatives uh, during the pandemic. You know, what did you do during pandemic? Yeah, I mean, uh, like any other business, uh, pandemic was a very difficult and challenging one. Uh, I remember, uh, firstly, we had a biggest challenge of people uh, calling off their weddings uh, very last minute. Some of them even 24 to 48 hours away, wow. literally when the the cold was, um, when the restriction was put on. So um, firstly, we had a challenge of, uh, you know, handling all those people, all those couples whose big days were almost planned. So first few days were really, really tough for us. And people are asking for their monies to be refunded. They don't know what's going to happen when this restriction is going to be over. So um, we had to refund a lot of monies to these couples and people uh, during these difficult times. And at the same time, we have to see how we can possibly continue our income streams as well as uh, retain our staff, which has been working with us for so many years. And we didn't really want to lose them because we knew if we lose them now and when things will be back on, it will be very difficult to build this team. And if I if I can emphasize on one thing I learned over the years is probably my biggest asset is my team. So even, even during COVID, I was uh, more worried about the team than my own self and my own business because I knew if I had the team, I would build it again soon. But if I don't have the team, it would take me years to do it again. So um, I think I was very fortunate. There are two parts of um, our success during COVID. The first part started with our One Million Meals campaign, which I would tell you a little bit more about it. And the second part was... Um, the drive-through, which we did during COVID. So the first part started in very early days because we have stocked up quite a bit of food 
uh, for a season because we were touching Easter holidays and usually it's a very busy time for us. So we had a lot of stock uh, within the business and when the news came out, there was news that it was not come off for a year. So we thought the food is going to go. How do we make the use of it? Uh, so there were news coming out about, uh, you know, um, the, the, the hospitals are flocking with the patients and there is no food in the restaurant, in the in the hospitals for even the NHS staff. There was a nurse crying over the TV saying there's no food to be bought because all the supermarkets are empty. So that really touched my heart. So I thought, you know, let me start supporting my local hospital and we can prepare a few meals and uh, take it out to the local hospital. So uh, Must have been the best cooked meal. <laughs> <laughs> within that, yes. So so we um, cooked the first day. We cooked a few meals and took it to the hospitals. And uh, by the time we entered the hospital, all the meals were taken by the staff. You know, this is how they were crazy for the food. So that really, you know, made me think again. I went back again, cooked again and brought a few more meals for that particular Croydon. Did you cook with your own hand? Uh, I helped. Obviously, there were chefs okay. working. So I also helped them uh, in terms of packaging and putting a few more things on top. So uh, so when I came back, we got a call uh, from another hospital. A colleague of Croydon Hospital was working elsewhere. He goes, we have learned that you've given them food. Why don't you give us the food? So we went to give them <laughs> the food. And that's when the idea started growing. How do we support the NHS staff? And, uh, you know, there are a lot of hospitals around. And staff, I'm sure, will be the same everywhere. So uh, we quickly set up a team. And we had a lot of staff working for us, as well as a lot of friends, volunteers willing to help us. And so we started just providing meals to the hospital. We set up a website where people can donate uh, to us. Obviously, we couldn't do it all on our, on our own. Mm-hmm. So we set up a website where people can donate us and we can provide meals to the hospitals. So we were you know, pretty much one of the first ones to, to set it up. And soon... A uh, lot of celebrities uh, found out about our campaign. Uh, a lot of uh, mainstream media got in, involved. One of the celebs, David Beckham, got involved into it. How did he find out? Did he tell you? Did you did get, get a chance to talk to him? Or? Yes, um, I did get a chance to talk to him. He was uh, known to me through a common friend. Um, so I reached out to my friend to uh, see if he could help us. I didn't want to ask him for a donation or anything. I thought if he, even if he can just spread a word for us, that will be enough for us. And that exactly happened. So uh, so I did speak to him briefly about what we're trying to do. And he was very inspired and impressed with what we're trying to do. So he very graciously went on to his social media. Even uh, he went live on his social media to tell people to support the campaign. And next thing is when we woke up next day, we had emails from BBC, Telegraph, uh, Metro, you name the Evening Standard, you know, they're trying to interview us and see how they can help us. Um, the Santander Bank became one of our lead sponsor. Uh, law of uh, colleges, universities, uh, London School of Economics. All as a result of... All as a result of uh, the celebs coming on. We had lots of other celebrities uh, who joined us later on, but David Beckham was the first one who uh, joined the campaign. You seem to be very connected. I mean, is that something that you actively do, like building connections and network, or or is something that comes to you? I think I think this is probably the reward of being in the hospitality industry. Uh, a lot of people ask me this question: How can you be so connected? And I tell them I never make any effort in building these connections. 
I think pretty much everyone comes to us, everyone walks to us. Somehow within the hospitality events industry, you come across celebrities, you come across politicians, you come across all these influential people who can be really valuable at the right time. And that's what exactly happened. And that shows the power of networking at the right time when David Beckham came on board. A campaign out of nothing blew into a massive nationwide campaign. Wow, that is that is really mind mind blowing. Now, so you were also attended. Um, you attended the Her Majesty's funeral. How did that come about? Yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest, I don't really know how did that came about. Uh, they usually have their own process of selecting people who they're going to invite. Um, so was it because you were already an MBE, or or is that some kind of a filter? Um, I mean, possibly it could be also uh, one of the reasons that. But there are lots of MBEs out there. Yeah, who that, I was going to ask you, like you know, <laughs> so, pretty much uh, you know, there there are a lot of uh, MBEs within our networks. Yes. So I think I think it could be. Um, I, I mean, it was a sad moment, but I think I was fortunate to be there. Uh, to be honest, I I didn't really influence it in any capacity mm-hmm. to be there. I was just selected to be there, and I think, um, like you said. Somehow, some people know you. I mean, recently I met uh, the new uh, principal secretary of uh, King Charles, and she happened to knew me already when I introduced myself. She goes, oh, "I've heard so much about you, Suleiman." Wow, and, that uh, is and, so uh, and cool. And she's just recently been appointed, like a few months ago. And I was, I thought she would, she wouldn't know me, and I'm just trying to tell her I'm just a normal restaurateur and all that. She goes, "I've heard so much about you." So. So you know somehow some people know you and that's how probably the list is created for this this invites and it was um, you know uh, a life uh, one of the best moments of my life attending queen's funeral Were you there the whole day I was there the whole day and the seat I managed to get was probably the hottest seat anyone can get hottest as in like hot hot or in terms of its value in the value okay not not as in hottest <laughs> the value of that seat because i was um pretty much on the entrance of uh of um uh, the westminster abbey where all the, the the presidents and the world leaders were supposed to make an entrance so there were two entrances one was for common people and the state guests and the second entrance for all the the presidents and the queens and kings so there were 100 <coughs> over 100 countries kings queens and presidents from joe biden to canadian president to to prince william the kate pretty much was literally walking on touching distance from who me who were you sat next to um i was sitting with some english um you know uh, people no 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 relevance to okay, them okay so so uh, no ministers or no, no, pre- no okay no 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 ministers but um uh i managed to be at the the right spot uh, so you got to see them everyone much, walking in and i was pretty much on the screen throughout the coverage because I, when i came out i wasn't allowed to keep the phone on I had my phone flocked with so many messages from people who wow. were seeing me on the TV, um, pretty much next to Prince Charles at the time, It's and so cool. Joe Biden, and all those big, big celebrities wow. who attended the event. So, you also quickly just say because we're running out of time. Quickly, um, you were you purchased or you bought into Mirpur Royals, and why why did you leave? 
Um, politics. Um, again, uh, the cricket uh, in the modern days has got a lot of politics involved in it. And uh, our origin from UK, we really can't afford to be part of any controversies. And so when I first bought the team, my intentions were to pretty much look at it from um, a commercial um, uh, point of view, as well as serving the local community and see how we can give opportunity to youngsters. But then as soon as I got into it, I learned there's so much politics, there is so much favoritism involved, and all these big players... Uh, for instance, my coach was in Zamamul Haq, my captain was Shreik Malik, who is currently playing in BPL right now. Um, it was very difficult to cope with them. So I thought I would have very limited say while I'm the one who's investing into it. So as an entrepreneur, this is not something you would do because you won't have things going your way and you will be relying on other people to make decisions uh. on your behalf. So I thought this is some, not something I envisaged. So it's best I call it quits and move on. Wow. So did you sell it or? or? We, we sold it, yes. Okay. Now, quickly before we finish um, with our quick fire questions, you were appointed as an MBE. How did that feel? And um, does it make you feel different now that you're, you've got an MBE attached to your name or you still Suleiman Raza? Yeah, I guess uh, it does help um, in terms of your recognition, your credibility, your um, status in the community. But then I guess uh, becoming an MBE brings uh, great responsibility. Uh, before having an MBE could be a different Suleiman and now it could be a different Suleiman because, um, as I said, the responsibility is greater. Um, you got to be very responsible on what you say and what you do your quote can be quoted in a different way and different terms. Um, I, mean, I mean, I was very, very fluent on social media uh, before I got an MBE. And now I have to think twice, uh, I mean, uh, you know, uh, about what I say, what I project on my social media. Similarly, um, in terms of the value of MBE is that, you know, um, I mean, we're very fortunate that we are um, catering partners at the 10 Downing Street. So we cater for events for all the, the presidents and all How that. do you make it all happen? I mean, is there, a, uh, is, is there a special thing about you or do you actually have a team that does all the outreach? Or is it quality of the food where they just come and I love think, your food? And I, think, I think, look, you know, I'm sure you're in the business and who knows better than you. There are so many people who want to set up Sunnah Musk. Not everyone can do it. The last yeah. blessing, yeah. you know, combination of so many things makes uh, a great perfume combination of so Absolutely. many things great a great recipe and combination of so many things makes a great or a successful business so um i think it's a bit of everything a great team great food connections networking influence all of these things makes you so is that why you met boris johnson and what was he like yeah very good um you know <laughs> is I, he the person that we see on media or i mean Obviously, he's been on. He's been to, I guess, one of the most expensive universities around the world. I mean, obviously, he acts a bit strange, but is he actually strange as a person? No, not really. I think one of the one of the things I've noticed in all these, um, you know, world leaders and all these politicians, I find them very humble. You know, when they come across uh, normal people, and that's what makes them leaders, probably that they they don't really come across awkward or tough or you know, uh, big headed. They're always very humble and, and a lot of them, you know, remember you with your name. For instance, I've met Rishi Sunak 
quite a few times and because we cater at the 10 Downing Street and I don't expect him to remember my name, but he does somehow. Similarly, the Mayor Sadiq Khan, uh, you know, he meets around so many people, you know, I mean, tons of people he knows around. But every time he would meet me, he would call me Suleiman, the Boris Johnson would call me Suleiman. So this is what I like. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm, I'm somebody special, but all I'm saying is these people are really They're special, special to be up that yeah. uh, role, doing that role. You know what, that's a very common thing. I think I've also witnessed around uh, leaders. If you email them, they'll actually email you back. You would expect someone who, who's a big leader, they're not going to respond back. But generally, they respond back by themselves, mm. which is quite a strange thing, in, uh, which I've realized in my journey, you know, in, in, in kind of um, uh, bu- being in business uh, for a while. So we're going to end um, our conversation with a um, quick fire question that we normally do with every guest, which makes it quite uh, enjoyable and entertaining. Um, try and keep it as very brief as possible. What's your favorite cuisine aside from South Asian? Japanese. Japanese. Mainly because, uh, you know, I don't really eat out much. And I just like Japanese sushi, maybe something like this along the lines. If you could travel in time backwards, where would you go? Um, Where would I go? Strange question. Pakistan. Pakistan. (laughs) We'll just go back there. And um, I have fond memories there, so we'll just go and cherish them. Like you said, if you look back, you know, the times were small. We didn't have enough money. We're still enjoying it. Yeah. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Stop the um, aggression in Palestine right now. MashaAllah. What a noble thought. Um, What's one thing that you can't live without? Mm. There's so many things. One thing. What's the one thing? My health. Okay. You know, I didn't think, uh, I thought you would have said like, you know, I need my phone because that's where all the connections are and, you know, things like that. But Brother Suleiman, it's really been a uh, pleasure talking to you. Um, although it's been a while since we were going back and forth, but Alhamdulillah, we finally made it. And uh, I'm definitely, definitely scheduling a visit to your, um, I don't know which, which restaurant it's going to be, but um, I'm coming to one of them. Wonderful. I hope you have enjoyed the conversation and I hope our viewers will also enjoy this conversation and share it with their family and friends. Um, once again, thank you very much uh, for, for coming on the show. And that's it for today. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode of Side by Side with myself, Kazi Shafiqur Rahman, and our special guest, Suleiman Raza, MBE. If you have enjoyed the episode, don't forget to share it with your family and friends and comment below with any questions that you may have and any guest recommendations for our future episode. 